I have nothing to mention that is particularly supernatural, other than there may be some sacred geometry present here, but I'm not an expert of sacred geometry. My degrees are in history. Uh, the story I'd like to end with tonight perhaps would have been more effective down by the water, but I didn't want you to think about that story there, because that is the scene of the crime. A horrific crime took place in Delaware Park by the water in June of 1961. I'd like to take you back then. So it was June 21st, 1961, in this park, and it was a beautiful day. There was rather unseasonable weather, but the sun was shining and it was clear. And there were all sorts of people gathered here. There were people here in the park taking in the roses. There were people on the water, on a canoe. And there were people in Park Meadow enjoying a romantic picnic. What really could go wrong on a day like that? Get stung by a bee. Uh, your canoe capsizes. Um, it rains on your picnic for some random reason. There are those random showers. Uh, unpredictable weather. What if a stranger approached you and offered you candy? That's what this story is about. It's about stranger danger. So, in the morning of June 21st, 1961, five-year-old Richie Edgington is playing outside his family home in the Parkside community. When a young woman approaches him and says that she's a friend of his mother and that he should come with her, he hesitates because his mom's inside and he's never seen this woman before. So she switches gears quickly and extends her arm and offers him candy. He takes it, and then he takes her arm, and he walks away with her. She takes him to the zoo, where they have a perfectly ordinary afternoon with one another, taking in the various exhibits. And then she takes him to Delaware Park, and while they're standing beside Hoyt Lake, taking in the view, she kneels beside him, and she puts both hands on his shoulders. And then she says to him, she whispers in his ear, this is where I'm going to drown you. And he thinks, is that what I just heard? And before he can respond, she switches gears very quickly and says, hey, how would you like to play cowboys and Indians? Now, just like every five-year-old boy in 1961, he says, would I? Of course. She was the cowboy, he was the Indian. And so they played somewhere around Starin, where there are some train tracks. I'm not entirely sure of the location, but the train tracks aren't active now. And at some point, she decided that he was a little overdressed to be an Indian. So she stripped him down to his underpants. And then when he wasn't looking, she tied his hands behind his back. Then she put a plastic bag over his head. And she carried him to the train tracks, and she tied him to the tracks, and she left him there. Now, what you're thinking might have happened did not happen. Those tracks were not active then. He somehow managed to free himself after she was gone, and he ran for his life, screaming. And his cries were heard by a lady in the neighborhood who took him inside, got him warm, calmed him down, and she called the police. They brought a detective plainclothes detective, a couple of them, along with a sketch artist. Because when a child experiences that kind of trauma, a child that, of that age, 
you need to get their story immediately while it's still fresh in their minds because they do switch gears rather quickly. So the artist is satisfied, has a composite, and the person, the police, they think are that they're looking for is a woman approximately 30 years of age. And she's quite tall and she's big. So the next day, the police are congregated in this park, scanning everywhere. And Richie is here with his mother and father and a detective, and they're retracing all their steps, going over what happened again. When somewhere in this rose garden, two young girls are kind of playing, and a young woman approaches both of them and says, I'm a friend of your mother, you should come with me. Nearby, the two girls' father overhears what's taking place and says, what did you just say to my children? What did you just say? We don't know you. Who are you? And she insists that he got it all wrong, that he didn't hear properly. He summons a police officer, a beat cop, who takes her story, takes his story, takes the children's story, looks at her ID. She's 15. She's certainly not the person that they're looking for. And he concludes that, yes, he must have misheard. So he says to him, I, sir, I think this is all a misunderstanding. Um, we're going to let this one go. And as a parting shot, the cop says, by the way, uh, she's only 15 and she should be in school today. Uh, I don't want to call a truancy officer. In those days, they actually had officers that went around looking for you if you weren't in school and would take you and put you in a paddy wagon with other children who were truant. So the cop says to him, would you mind taking her home? So he does. Later that day, three-and-a-half-year-old Andrew Ashley is leaving the family home on Jewett Parkway, going down the street to a neighbor's house. Here's some important context. In 1961, most parents wouldn't bat an eyelash if their three-and-a-half-year-old walked down the street to another person's house unattended. It was perhaps a more innocent time, but it really wasn't. He never made it to the neighbor's house. Many hours go by, and Mrs. Ashley has not heard from Andrew. So she calls the neighbor's house. There's no answer. So she goes down the street. All the lights are off. Their door's locked. No one's home. She starts to panic. She calls the police, and she concludes that her son is missing. So the next day, Mrs. Ashley is on the radio. She's on TV urging people with knowledge of Andrew's whereabouts to call the police. Meanwhile, at a phone booth in this park, the same phone booth from the day before, a young woman is on the telephone, and a plainclothes police officer is standing nearby, listening in on her conversation. She calls Mrs. Ashley's house. She televised her phone number so that people could call her or the police. And what she says to Mrs. Ashley is the following. If you ever wish to see Andrew again, you'll call off the pigs. Hearing what she said, the plainclothes police officer identifies himself, and she throws her hands up in the air and says, It's all a misunderstanding. You didn't hear me correctly. He said, To hell I did. 
think I've seen you here before. Weren't you here yesterday? Didn't you maybe ask two other young children to come away with you? You need to come with me. So he takes her into custody, calls her parents. Her parents come, and she gives a full confession. She abducted Richie Edgington, and she abducted Andrew Ashley, but she can't explain where he is. Later that evening, the police find, in a plastic bag, the body of three-and-a-half-year-old Andrew Ashley floating in White Lake. He was dead. He was probably drowned. There was fluid in his lungs. But there was also strangulation marks around his neck. This young woman's name I hesitate to say because since this, these crimes took place, no one has seen or heard from her. And she was 15 years of age at the time. She'd be in her 70s now if she were still living, and she very well may be. Her name is Cheryl Joles. And if you say this name to older people uh, or people of a certain age in the Parkside community, they'll recognize the name. What happened next was uh, rather sad and a miscarriage of justice. Justice. She was sent to a psychiatric institute downstate, away from the media and local politics. And when she came here in November, just after Thanksgiving, uh, she was photographed at the central terminal, looking healthy, looking normal. <coughs> and then she went before the judge, and she was a shaking, quivering mess. And the judge ordered her to go back to the asylum until she was fit to stand trial. So six months go by, six months of continuous bulletins being sent to this judge, and there's no progress. A year goes by, nothing. Her condition's worse. She's catatonic. Two years. Nothing. No progress. Unfortunately, she's now 18. She's an adult. Her parents don't want her anymore. They don't want to take possession of her. So she's now a ward of the state. Her lawyers petition the court to have the charges dropped. And they do. The charges are dropped, and she is released from the sanitarium and the asylum. And she has not been seen or heard from since. Cheryl had a horrible childhood. Her mother was a nurse, and her father was an alcoholic. Um, she had an uncle who was a prominent doctor in the area, so she came from a good family, but her parents were neglectful. And at about age four, she was taken from her parents to go live in group homes. And she lived in group homes all over the place, including in Cattaraugus County. She was living in a group home in Salamanca at one point. And at these group homes, she displayed some rather disturbing behavior. She liked to take other children away from the group home and tie them up. So her behavior appeared to be some sort of compulsion that she couldn't control. She also had a uh, proclivity for fire and setting things on fire. And at the last group home she lived at, it burned to the ground, and it was suspected that she may have set the fire. Around age 14, her father dried up. He was no longer uh, addicted to alcohol, and he had found Jesus, and Jesus had found him in the form of a local pastor who urged the court to get Cheryl back. The problem is her parents were just as negligent as they were before. Um, 
Her story is a very sad story, and I wish I knew what happened to her. Um, I don't necessarily see her as a victim, but I see her as a person who we failed. Her parents failed her, the system failed her, the city failed her, everybody failed her. Um, this behavior of hers was troubling, and there was evidence of it from the beginning that it was a compulsion that she couldn't control. And these, these abductions and this murder never should have happened, but they did. Now, if you mention her name in the Parkside community, again, there's some very hard feelings even to the present day. Some people think that she terrorized this community. I think she did something worse. I think she took away people's illusions of safety, that our children are safe being unaccompanied without adults. Now, statistically speaking, and I'll repeat what I said when we started this, mentally ill people don't mean anybody any harm. Stranger danger is a thing, but not that much of a thing. Most children are abducted by someone they know. Being abducted by a perfect stranger is a very rare thing indeed. Um, this is a rather bad note to end this tour on, but I'd like to return to um, what I said at the start of the tour about mental